about your, your music career because no one would ever know you know that you're actually my neighbor <laughs> <laughs> no I you know it's interesting after I work for you I said I used to want to call for people guy who got on your line you're just saying ah but it's true Art Lisi was my neighbor growing up although his career predates me he Started his career with a Washington, D.C. icon, Van McCoy, also a Howard University alum. And uh, from there, he would go on to hook up with a guy by the name of Stu Gardner. Together, they would co-produce and arrange music for three of the most iconic television shows in television history. The Cosby Show, A Different World, Living Single. They also helped to write and produce music for the House of Love album, as well as Little Bill. Art has won over a dozen BMI awards. He's still in music today, doing great things. And this is an awesome interview. Art and I are coming at you right now. Hey, Mr. Art Lacey, how you doing? I'm doing good. First of all, tell the audience about uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and, uh, you know, uh, what you do. Okay, where am I from? Um... I was born in Wisconsin, moved down here to Virginia when I was like maybe in the second grade. Down here is obviously in Alexandria, Virginia. 
I've uh, lived here most of my life. I went to Catholic University, got a degree in music. Um, when I graduated from Catholic University, I went to American University and did some music work. And when I was at American University, I was working at a teaching studio in Alexandria, and I ran into a guy named Charles Kipps, who was working with Van McCoy at the time. And they said they needed just some music written down stuff, just some lead sheets to do. And he said, if I can do it cheaper than the guys in New York, I could go ahead and do it. <laughs> so I said, I can do it. <laughs> now, and, you uh, mentioned Al growing up in Alexandria, Virginia and getting to that point, what was the Washington metropolitan area like at that time? Um, very different. Very different. You know, Washington, the suburbs were far more like you're out in the country, kind of, you know, than the city, and just the area has grown up has grown up a lot. Um, when I lived was here... It more, was it a sleepy town, or...? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you one little thing to say. When I went to high school, at Edison High School, which is now in Franconia, Virginia, I do not remember any black students there. Wow. And that has obviously changed over the time. And I never, we never thought anything about it, because that was just the way it was. Wasn't until I was much older that I realized. Was Springfield a big hub back then? No, Springfield was out in the country. What? <laughs> <laughs> Once you left, like the city of Alexandria, you went into the suburbs. You were out. It was nothing like it is today. You know, wow. a small narrow, narrow road. Franconia Road was a small little winding road, and um, and there was not much out there. And Edison High School was one of the Actually, last of the four of the four or five within the the district of high schools at that time, right? Hayfield well, was the very my, last one. Yeah, my brother went to Edison, but it wasn't even built when I was small. It wasn't even built yet. Wow! So it was a it was a newer high school. They went to Groveton, and then Edison High School was built maybe in the early sixties. So at that you time, it was actually um, a new high school. What year did you meet Dan McCoy and uh, your introduction to music? Because I know he's from Howard University. What year was that? Well, I met him. It was probably, now you're asking tough questions, probably in the early 70s because I met his business partner who was happened to be taking guitar lessons where I was teaching and it was maybe maybe a year after that that I actually met Van. So probably early 70s. What kind of music was going down at that time? Um, maybe, well, it was just R&B. R&B was sort of evolving into disco. Um, Van McCoy was a, was a writer. You know, a staff writer at Columbia, he wrote a lot of R&B songs. He wrote the song Baby, I'm Yours and... Uh, stuff like that. So he was a, more of an R&B writer, and Disco really hadn't come around yet, but Van basically, Van was basically a songwriter, and he liked doing mm -hmm. that. He lived in Rock Creek Park. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. And he, um, I think he had a home in, mm -hmm. go ahead. I think he had a home in New Jersey, too. When he worked in New York, he had a home in Ingleside, New Jersey, but he also had a home in Rock Creek Park. 
the music scene in D.C., um, when you were involved, uh, a lot of people, other than Van McCord, Roberta Flack, there's so many people that came out of the Washington metropolitan area. When you were in college, what was happening? Did you get to, you know, know about uh, Bo Diddley's basement over on the, uh, was it Rhode Island Avenue? Or? <laughs> when I was in college, I probably listened to, um, I probably listened to, uh, you know, like, um, this music of the day, I was not really into R&B music. It wasn't really until mm-hmm. I met Van that I sort of started getting, you know, that I was exposed to that stuff there. I was probably more into uh, just rock and roll music at the time. So Mother's of Invention? A, huh? Mother's, Mother's of Invention, yes. <laughs> yes. Did you make it to yeah. Woodstock? Did I make it to Woodstock? No. No. I was not... I was too conservative for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. Uh-uh. I knew I all the believe. bands. I listened to. All, I need. I listened to all the music and everything. But I was when I went to school. I was a class. I was being trained as a classically trained musician. Okay. I was a music ed major and a piano and a piano mind. Piano. So I was okay. basically into classical music. When um. And it's funny because. Because Van McCoy also was a classic. He was he was a violinist. He played violin, and I believe he was also basically kind of a classically trained composer. And that kind of reflects on the kind of arranging he did and everything on his songs. Hmm. So when you actually started to meet Van, um, who else are you meeting in the music industry? I'm sure it wasn't just him. Um, how how did it evolve where you started meeting people within the music industry? Well, yeah, because when I would run up to New York, the, you know, eventually it was just Van. So probably the first people I ran into were a lot of the studio musicians because I was doing copying, copying for Van. He would give me scores to copy out. So when I would go up to New York, I would meet, and at the time I really didn't realize who they were, but I would meet more of the studio musicians. He had a group that... Uh, that probably did a lot of the studio albums. I think Gordon Edwards was a bass player. Richard T was a very famous keyboard player. Um, Steve Gadd was the drummer. These are all famous studio musicians that everyday people might not know. But those were probably the first people I met. So I got to meet a lot of the famous people who did actually the recording sessions up in New York. And then from there, I probably met some of the artists that Van that Van worked with. And eventually... Eventually, I got to, um, after working with Van for a while, I got to put together a road band for him because when he went on tour, then I was able to put a road band together for him of actually local musicians from D.C. to go on the road and perform it. So were you an on-the-road person at any time? Was I on the road person without? No, I started, uh, what happened is I was doing the work and Charlie Kitts came up to me and said, look, the studio musicians certainly aren't going to go tour because there's not enough money in it, but if you can put a band together, once again, um, you can do it and we'll use your group. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> so that's how I got to start touring the band. Did you like it? I liked it. I loved it for three weeks at a time. <laughs> Other <laughs> Other people really, you know, they, that's what they really like doing. I liked doing it. It was fabulous. But after about three or four weeks, I was saying, can I go home? <laughs> oh, really? It was that bad, huh? You didn't like all the groupies? No, it was great. It was awesome. 
it was awesome, but I was not a, and, and Van won, you know, Van was not a real, Van liked doing what he did, which was being in the studio and working that way. And being on the road was probably, it was awesome. It was great. But, you know, after three or four weeks at one time, it was like, okay, let me go home and regroup. And then I'm ready to go right. out again. <laughs> a lot of a lot of taxing, you know, going in and out, and you know, just uh, getting a place to stay, and you know, I don't know, tour busing or whatever. That's that's got to take a lot of toll on anybody. Yeah, it was just it was more just being away from home. You know, it was more, and like I said, some of the guys just loved they loved every minute of it, and I loved every minute of it too. Don't get me wrong. And because we were with Van, you know, we didn't everything was set up for you. You didn't have to worry about anything. And so that was that was really great, but um, you know, but at, after so long, it was like, okay, I'm ready to go, <laughs> go home. <laughs> and the time that you got into uh, working with these musicians, Van, um, music was dramatically changing into all kinds of things. Um, you were in school when the the '60s and Flower Power and whatever was going on, and then that was got me. into the mellow, yeah, <laughs> the, the mellow, part mellow, part pop, uh, top 40, you know, bubblegum machine type things, and then disco hits. What did you actually think of this whole disco thing? Because some people think it's an aberration of R&B, it just sort of mixes, you know, and then it came up with a lot of debauchery, too, you know, for the whole disco you know, when you're a musician and you're actually working on producing music or working with people who are producing music, I don't think you look at music quite the same way. In other words, we were just putting, it was just a, a process of putting music together in a way that people hadn't done before. I mean, a lot of it just sort of fell into place just from people experimenting. And so mm -hmm. when you're actually involved in the industry part of it, you're pretty much focused on how you're going to put all this stuff together. It's um, You're not actually looking at the social aspect of it necessarily, except that, is your record selling or not, but you're looking at how we're, going to, how we're going to get this sound, how we're going to produce this kind of sound versus this kind of sound. So I think you're not quite as involved with the other things as maybe you know, maybe the artists or the people who are out, you know, getting drawn into it on the outside. We're more like craftsmen, and we're sitting there working on how to get this accomplished. Were you ever pressured by any of the, at that time they called them record, record companies to produce certain things that you just didn't agree with? Were you, were you, did that ever present itself to you, or did you, were you able no, to? No, I was not, that. Yeah, that's a good question. That was a great part of what I did. I was never involved in that. I was just, since I since I was Van's friend and Charlie's friend, they would say, well, we're going to do this, and I would say, fine. You know, it was music. It was music. I mean, we were, involved, we were involved in just, you know, putting the music together. So, no. The answer to that is no. One interesting thing to tell our listeners, since, you know, you, you don't have um, a lot of orchestration in music now. You don't have... You know the bands that have like fifteen or twenty people in them <laughs> anymore uh, playing. You know you wonder how all those people eat. Um, you came from people who actually 
played music. People you were working with actually sang music. There was probably no auto-tune back in that day. How do you <laughs> uh, feel about how the music has evolved into... I mean, because there's, there's great musical forms in all of everything, but things were different then. I mean, you, you had, you know, 20-piece bands. You had, like, an Earth, Wind, and Fire. You had, you know, an Ohio Players. You had so many different bands, and many of those bands came, like you did, from classical or jazz. I just talked right. to Robert Cool Bell, and he came, he was, he, the Cool and the Gang were the Jazzy X. They were jazz. So were the Ohio yeah. Players. So you came yeah. uh, into the music uh, with that music background. Right. Um, how has it, uh, how do you feel it's changed over the decades to what it is now compared to, you know, uh, the grassroots yeah. you know, in, the, in the studio raw deal with a whole big orchestration? Right. Well, another, yeah, so way back when, um, you couldn't have, in other words, if you were going to put out an album, you had to employ so many live musicians, whether they be string players or whatever. And slowly over time with synthesizing and all that, that has changed. But there was a time when you couldn't put out an album through the union without employing lots of people. Um, I think, you know, the technology of music has changed. Um People still, somebody still has to play it, though, whether it's on a computer or something. So, you know, the way it's put together has changed. Some things have changed a lot and some things still haven't changed. You know, it's hard hard thing to put your finger on. I mean, no, you're not employing all these people anymore. Um, but, some, but, you know, like in movie music, music for a movie still employs large orchestras that do stuff. Um but music is always is an always evolving thing. I think you know, change change to me is usually good. I might not like it all, but you know, some you're always going to progress in music. Something new is going to happen, and it's usually mm-hmm. driven by technology. Right. So when we right. started out recording, when Van started out recording, we all thought it was a big deal to go to track recording in Silver Spring because they had eight tracks, and then they moved to 16 tracks. And, you know, technology has just taken it so far beyond that that, you know, people can sit in their at homes on their computers. But the other thing I think that hasn't changed and is that I think people still like to listen to live music. Right. You know, they right. want to go hear, they want to go hear music. And that's where, I mean, a lot of the jazz people and the stuff um, you know, they're still out there playing. So, you know, people like to hear live music. In the 70s, you are um, dealing with Van McCoy. Van McCoy, a uh, brilliant songwriter, started in the early 60s and um, in 70s and produced a lot of, uh, a lot of people um, and then had a major success on his own uh, in the mid-70s, including a dance craze. <laughs> um, right. Were you listening through that? And what was that like? You know, what was that like? Um, well, that that was you know, like I said, when we went on tour, we went to great places. So we we played at huge discos and everything. It was fabulous. <laughs> Again, to me, it was just you know, I was working in music. I was thrilled to be working in music, and I like a lot of kinds of music. So 
I didn't have a problem doing, you know, I liked the, the process of, of putting music together, which I did later on when I did other projects. So what I liked was the process of how, how you, of putting music together and doing things like that. Um, you know, so the social aspect of music is a little different. Say mm-hmm. it again. You, 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 uh, you were talking about the social aspect of music? Yes. You know, the social aspect of music, people who are sitting in the, in the recording studio or whoever doing that stuff, they're doing their craft. Then the artist, the social aspect of how the audience views it to me is kind of another, another aspect of things that you really can't predict. You know, I mean, record companies were always trying to capitalize on that and figure that out, but you could never really predict the social aspect of music, which is completely right. different. In yeah. the um, success that Van had uh, early on as a basic songwriter, he tried to actually be an artist. And do you feel that um, when The Hustle came out, was that just one of those magic moments for him? Oh yeah, I mean Van. Van liked to do. Van liked sitting in the studio and he liked writing songs. Being a star with all that stuff probably was the thing he liked the least. You know, I think he sort of. Now there, you talk about record company pressure. He sort of had to do those things. What Van liked doing was sitting in the recording studio, recording those things, making that music, going out and being a star and being a front person was not necessarily in his nature he did it because naturally when you write a hit song that's what you do but he is a person that I felt you know that sort of compromised him a little bit for what he really liked doing well that um, his his last major hit The Hustle um, under his name um, I'm, I'm sure was a, a monstrous surprise <laughs> it, it oh really it was achieved. because because the way that came out is, and I was not there at the time, but Charlie was telling me, when they were recording the album, they needed another song for this, for the album they were putting out. And um, the theme line for the hustle was a little piccolo part that was buried in another song. A little doot doot doot. And so they took that piccolo line, they threw it together for the hus- for the dance for the hustle, and nobody in there, nobody expected that to do anything. And that was the big hit. Music is not predictable. <laughs> and, yeah, most definitely, and it became a dance craze and and uh, and whatnot. Now, then yeah. after that, what was it like working with him at that time when he his name is out there, his hit is out there? I'm sure it got him more work, even though oh, was, you know always written and produced other people. Right. In other words, the more work it got Van, which he liked, was he got to produce a lot of artists then. So that, I think he produced uh, an album for Melba Moore. He produced an album for Whitney Houston's mom, I think. Um, so it got him, and he produced an album for David Ruffin, um, the guy from the Temple. Yeah, Walk Away from Love, yeah. Yeah, Walk Away from Love, which was a song that Charlie Kipps, the guy who I originally met, wrote. So they were able to do a lot of music, and in that process, it also put a lot of pressure on them to get things 
to get things done, you know, to come out with new things, to keep the ball rolling and everything. So it's always a double-edged sword when stuff like that happens because now you got to work harder and, you know, it's um, it's a strange business. <laughs> well, for the, seven, uh, the 75, 76 year, the hustle was, um, I'm in reading a, a monster hit, um, and you're saying the, the pressures and everything of getting another hit out, but then... Um, you know, it wasn't wasn't around too much longer after that. What happened no. in those final years? You were working with him. You know, Van was just you know, I, you know, it was just it was hard. Like I said, Van, Van was Van was a kind of a private person. He wanted to sit back, you know, in his uh, in his home and just kind of be the arranger and the composer and the writer and. You know, it just kind of all takes its toll on you. And in his case, I think it's on, like I've just on a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's just, it was, it's a shame. It's a shame that he passed away at such a, well, what was interesting, because one of the last things I did a little show with a little local brand, band that Van came up to see, and I remember he came up to me and he said, um, he said, you know, Arthur, you've been working with me for a long time. He said, and I really appreciate everything. And he said, the next album I do, I want you to help me produce it. Of course, that album never never came along. You worked with um, many people and many musicians, but you also worked with people in music uh, and, and television. Um, how did that um, that part come into your life, uh, music television? Oh, I worked real hard at that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I had it. I had an ad in the Yellow Pages. Ages back, everybody had their little ads in the Yellow Pages, and I had an ad in the Yellow Pages under music arranging and copying. And one day I got a call from a guy in California. His name was Stu Gardner. And he said, well, first he said, Bill Cosby's going to be on The Tonight Show, and I need an arrangement. He said, my brother lives in D.C., and I saw your name, so... If you can do this arrangement, get it to my brother. He can send it out to me. Are you interested in doing that? And I said, sure. So I did that for about a year. And then the one day I got the call from Stu Gardner, and he said, look, Bill Cosby's thinking about putting together a TV show. He said, I like the work you've done for me. He said, there's no money in it right now, but you want to help me do it. And I said, of course. And so we got together a couple of times, and then we started putting this thing together. You know, Stu came over to Virginia, he moved to Richmond, and we just started putting it together. And the rest is history. <laughs> wow, yeah, it definitely is. The Cosby Show's theme, and, and uh, you have also been a part of many other television show themes and the movie themes. What other, other arrangements for shows have you done? Well, we did for off of off of the Cosby Show show stuff. I think we did uh, then actually when Lisa Bonet got her spinoff show, which was A Different World. If I mm-hmm. remember myself, uh, we did music for that, and then we did music for um, we did some music for Living Single. So there were a bunch of couple of spinoff things that came off of that that we were involved with, and then later they did a uh, obviously they did the cartoon uh, show Little Bill. Which was which was all jazz, and so we worked on that for for like you know as long as that was out as well. Mm-hmm. And doing television, uh, music wise, you're still working with an orchestra, right? 
we're well yes you're working with more what more of a rhythm section kind of situation yes and 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 when you need other instruments yes you call them in so we had when we had the Crosby show we had a basic five or six piece rhythm section at that time you could now use synthesizers for strings and various things like that so then you could bring in those those things there and you know, the good part about that is that you can test all these things out at home now. You don't have to go in the studio and try them out. The bad thing is that sometimes you lose some creativity of what the other players would bring in. So, you know, it's good. Again, it's good and bad. But we still had like a five or six piece rhythm section. And there was a couple of Cosby shows where they wanted bigger things happening, you know, so we would have to bring in orchestral players, you know, harp players, timpani players, violin players. And so. But the good thing about the modern technology was that you didn't have to go in the studio and find out the stuff you wrote was not very good. You could test it out at home ahead of time. <laughs> uh, the, you, you say that in terms of um, being able to have more creativity in having a uh, orchestra there, um, do you find that when you put voices with music, it's better to do it in studio? Uh, well, usually what we always did was we did the rhythm tracks first and then we added the vocals afterwards just for logistics purposes. You know, so if you're recording your rhythm players, you want to concentrate on what they're playing at so that when the singers come in, they don't have to worry about it's a matter of time and money. You know, they don't want to have to sit around while the musicians mess up for an hour. <laughs> you know, they want to. So you, you usually separate all those things, yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about when you're talking about these um, rhythm sections and, you know, getting people together, in the music industry when uh, you were getting into it, it seemed as though that music was written for um, sort of wrapping a artist voice around the music. Um, right. In terms of creativity, everybody's voice is different. Right. Um, sometimes today that is lost, and um, because the industry wants the next, I don't know, Taylor Swift or the next whoever artist, a lot of that um, individuality is lost. Do you feel that in um, the basics um, of the past, uh, do you think that will ever come back where we will actually have artists today, and not that we don't have them, we just don't have enough of uh, different artists. We have a lot of artists today sometimes even imitating <laughs> their favorite artists. Um, right. Before, you could have a Tiny Tim. Uh, you, before, you, you could have somebody that was really weird, like a Dr. John, uh, but the music was wrapped around their voice. It wasn't generic. It wasn't you know, the same thing. Do you think we'll ever get back to that kind of originality? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's an interesting point you bring up because, yeah, now now if you listen to, mu um, you know, a lot of the music and all kind of sound, they all, you know, there's a certain sound people get used to. And mm -hmm. I agree, back further back, you could have a lot of different kinds of voices. People with, that nowadays you would never hear that range of, that range of voice, vocal work, or 
you know, you don't hear that range anymore. Um, the songs are all kind of sound alike. The voices, you know, sort of the way the songs the are produced are made to sound a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't have somebody like, say, the guy from um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, David Clayton Thomas. You don't hear voices like that anymore. Right. Or you don't you hear just Teddy don't Pendergrass hear either. You don't hear Teddy Pendergrass anymore. You don't hear Jeffrey Osborne anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, some of the certain R&B stars, um, you know, it's all, it's again, it's kind of prepackaged sort of way, but I think the band, I agree with you, the band has narrowed. The yeah. band has narrowed. Um, you know, because you, you hear and you can see some of the um, comeback with Haley and Chloe and or Bruno Mars. Um, you can see some of it coming back in John Legend. Yes. You can see some of those basics there with um, maybe even Kendrick Lamar who uses jazz and different things in this. So you can see some of that touch. That's, uh, and, and there's a lot of originality, too, like Travis Scott. Um, so I just thought I would ask that because it, it seemed like it took a lot of um, effort, not, not only with the band, the orchestration, um, and really working with an artist uh, to get that authentic sound. But, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, the guy from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, um, and then, you know, you go to, <laughs> you, you might laugh at this, a Richard Harris. I never understood MacArthur Park, but it was interesting. <laughs> it was there, though. I understand, I understand what you say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, even the lyrics, I was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it became, and then Donna Summer did her version of it. But the, the you know, it, it worked. The sound yeah, works. Yeah. I mean, if you took yeah. the, uh, the, the elements apart and just listen to the lyrics, you'd be like, what the? Okay, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have that now. Now, no, and what do you think? Oh, go ahead. No, I said also the, tech, the way people hear music has changed. In other words, nowadays, when if something's slightly offbeat or something, people are at computers correcting all that thing all those little minor things. So the way we, we the audience is, has gotten used to hearing music so precise and so perfect is actually not the way, it, when people go perform it, that's, just, that's not the way it is. So there was a time when, yeah, something was a little offbeat, it didn't matter or this. Now if you, when you go and produce your things, we're sitting at computers and making sure you know, all the beats line up. No note is out of place. That's one reason I kind of like jazz now because there's a lot more freedom into it. But when they go and and when they're on their computers and the person sung the part, we're making sure no note is out of key. We're making sure all these this perfection is there that in in reality doesn't really exist. But we've become used to hearing it. One thing I wanted to ask you, and you mentioned that, I mean, it used to be you could go to games and you'd hear people actually sing live, more so than today, today, the Star Spangled Banner. And other, you know, uh, you know events, they would actually do some serious singing. Um, now you've got backtracks and other things, and I'm sure you had them back in the day. But getting back to the authenticity of the bands and, and you know, being on the road, how was it? For you, even when you were out there for three weeks, 
you guys didn't really care about the money, right? <laughs> uh, we we you know what we did, but not as much as because the money wasn't great, but but <laughs> it was just it was just like oh my gosh, I can't believe we're out here playing, you know, and and because yeah, Van I, had a big hit. Van had a big hit. I mean, we played, and, you know, it was just like, wow. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> you know, and, they, and most, of the, most of the musicians just wanted to play well. They wanted to play. You know, they wanted to play. Yeah, um, and, and getting your work out there, you know, a lot of people just don't break through. What are you doing today? You've mentioned a lot about... Um, your beginnings, and, of course, Cosby, he's done other projects, too. What have you uh, been up to lately in terms of music? I I teach, and I'm very happy doing it. I teach piano at Music and Art Center, and I just, we have, like, three or four bands that we, there's, like, four or five of us that have the same people in different genres, and I play a lot. I do a lot of playing, um, just locally. I play play different places, and um, and I teach music. And it's wonderful. <laughs> there's no pressure. There's no, you know, it's great. That's good. That's great. And the thing is, you, and the reason why I ask that, I mean, um, they still run the shows today on various channels. People say, oh, no, they're not running. Yeah, they, they're, they're still running the shows on various channels on um, cable te- television. And, right. you know, you know it, it, those shows are classic. Um, no right. matter what's going on socially, those shows will be playing for years to come. Yeah, yeah. It will be I, um, playing for years to come. You know, I, I, I watch, I actually, there, you know, I look back and say, wow, did I really do that? <laughs> <laughs> did I actually play that stuff? Was I actually doing that stuff? And, um, you know, like music, like anything, you know, life, life goes on and evolves and you move from the next thing to the next thing. And, I think, you know, if you're going to have a career in music that spans time, I think you have to be willing, you have to be able to do that as well. You have to move from one item to the next item to the next item. Uh, you can't get Before stuck in one place. I, and then, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about the House of Love album. Um, yeah. That was in there. I believe that was in the mid-'80s. How did that right. come about? Um, I think what happened with that was uh, Stu, Stu and the guy I worked with, Stu Gardner, was a personal friend of Bill Cosby long before he was famous. And I think he went to Cosby and said, look, I want to put um, put an al- put this album out. And I think Cosby signed off on it. And the, what was cool about that album was we probably had, because the Cosby show was, was such a big hit, we probably had some of the you know best jazz musicians around playing playing on that album. We had um, Grover Washington Jr. played a lot on it because um, he was doing the music for the show as well. So we had a lot of, a lot of great instrumentalists were on that album. Uh, Grover Washington. We had um, I forgot the sax player's name now. We had a bunch. We had a bunch of very famous musicians. Uh, the Brecker Brothers, Michael and Randy Brecker, were on there, and and they couldn't have been nicer people, you know, to deal with. It's kind of funny because the those particular musicians who were who were star who are you know headliners in their own right for what they did could not have been nicer people. Well, that's great. And you know, in terms of singing the theme song, you had not only Aretha Franklin, but was it Phoebe Snow or was it Patty Austin that did A Different World First? 
Uh, We auditioned Phoebe Snow, but they didn't like her for some reason. And this is the part of the industry that makes you like, say, if I never have to deal with this again, it would be wonderful. (laughs) <laughs> we had right. our our we had we had Al Green come in to do a to do a to do a theme song, and so um, for one of the seasons of the Cosby Show, and Al Green was phenomenal. I was like, we did laid the rhythm track down. Al Green sang it; he was wonderful, and. Um, the producers were all going, oh, this is wonderful, this is wonderful. And then the next day, Stu calls me and said, oh, they called me and said they couldn't use it, they didn't like it. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> and they said, no. Wow. So, and no one told Al Green the song was not going to be used. So when the premiere came out, Whoa. Al Green's watching TV wait for his song, and it didn't come on. And so, I mean, I, I ended up using Aretha, but... You know that's the kind of the, that's the side of the business that makes you wonder. Well, what are people doing? <laughs> you know, In the beginning pretty, of uh, a different world, though, there was another voice before they got a reason. There was another. I'm trying to think. I don't think it was Phoebe Snow. I can't remember who it was. Was it Patty Austin? And I, I, I don't know. I, it was not Patty Austin. I, I cannot remember. You're right. The very first year there was someone else. Mm-hmm. And I and. You're going to have to go do some research. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I definitely will try to find out who, who it actually was, you know. Uh, because, uh, yeah, you're, you know, people make that decision. I was really surprised when the theme song changed. I'm like, oh, that's the Queen of Soul. Wow, that's kind of cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I and now now I'm once I hang up I'm going to go and find out who for, try to find out who it was because you're right it was a di- was a different person. <laughs> And it well, may have just someone that Stu knew or something in New York, and then they decided because the the the, the Cosby Show model was we're going to change the theme song every year, and they did that, and so they used different artists every year. And maybe, as I'm recollecting back, they may have been thinking to do the same thing with that show, but you know, once Aretha sang it, who are you going to replace her with? <laughs> right, right. And she was married to one of the guys on the show, too. Yeah. (laughs) She was married to Lynn Truman. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's been great to to hear this journey. I was wondering, do you think you and Stu will ever hook up again and do something? Oh, I talked to him back and forth. Um, Stu's a lot older than me, and um, and I'm not saying how old I am. Um, But, um, yeah, (laughs) we might. I talked to him pretty (laughs) often. <laughs> we know you're 35. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, uh, we we may. You know, I talk to him periodically. Um, but you know, the thought of doing, I don't know. I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. You know, it, he, uh, I found out that Stu was actually a jazz musician. He actually cut an album. I believe it was on Motown. Oh yeah, he did a um he did Stu actually was very he did a lot of things. He worked with a ton of people. Uh he did the music to a movie called Point Blank. He um he did a couple albums with Cosby, but but he's done a ton of stuff. Yeah. He's done a ton of mm-hmm. stuff. He knew a well, lot of the people. people. Uh-huh. He knew a lot of the people in LA. He grew up he uh he was with the with the LA LA 
group of people. Him and, I mean, the, the guy who he died a couple years ago, maybe, um, Wawa Watson, who I was friends with. Um, who did all like all of the guitar work for Barry White and all that that stuff there? So they were friends, and they had done a lot of work. They had done work together for many, many years. Well, and Wawa Watson was like the guitar, for, the guitar player for. He was a guitar player for everybody's album back in the day. Well, you just never know what the future brings. You probably have a lot of good music ahead of you. I'm hoping. Like I say, I enjoy playing. I enjoy playing a lot, so I'm, I'm doing what I like. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate the time. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Sabrina.